This evening we're continuing looking at the book of Hebrews uh, and we're in chapter 12. Graham took us through the first couple of verses last week uh, and we're going to be looking at the next section now. So we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 3 to verse 11. So if you have a Bible you might like to turn to it, it will be on the screen um, in the church here. So Hebrews chapter 12 and starting reading at verse 3 uh, and the writer says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, but what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true ones. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for us. How much more should we submit to the Father of the spir- our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace, for those who have been trained by it. And God will bless his word as we consider it together this evening. Suffering is good for you. You should expect it and you should welcome it. I don't think anyone who's trying to market Christian faith would feel that that was a very effective strapline. It's much easier to say, smile, Jesus loves you. Or to say, trust in Jesus and everything will be all right. And both these have uh, truth in them. And yet, the, the fact that suffering is a good thing for us is something which is very much present throughout the New Testament. So in James, right at the beginning of his book, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. And in this passage here, the the writer tells us that our sufferings are good for us and that they are things which our Heavenly Father in his love allows to come upon us. Suffering is good for us. And we might well say, well, why is that? In many ways, it's counterintuitive. In our society, we aim for a life that is easy, that is straightforward, and we don't welcome suffering. I think the answer is that suffering that has a purpose is good. If there is a purpose and an end goal in it, then suffering is worthwhile. In this passage and in many others, Paul has in mind at least some of the time an athlete, someone who is running in a race. 
and throughout um, the New Testament, uh, when this thought of an athlete uh, is in mind, very much what is usually in the writer's uh, forefront of their thinking is that it requires a great effort. We need to be disciplined. We need to work hard if we're going to win the prize. And so there is a purpose in the suffering that people go through in that kind of situation. And the writer here says there is a purpose too in our suffering. There was a purpose in the Lord's suffering. That was in verses 1 and 2 that Graham brought to us last week. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. His purpose was first of all to please and be obedient to his father and secondly to bring us into a living relationship with God where our sins can be forgiven and we can have eternal life. And because of the purpose that the Lord Jesus saw in his suffering, he endured it patiently. And so the writer says, in our suffering, there is a purpose. And therefore, it is worthwhile. And it is something which we should, in some sense, welcome. And that purpose is that we should become more like Jesus. The, the, the writer uh, here describes it in terms of a harvest of righteousness and peace. And that very much is becoming more like Jesus, isn't it? Having his righteousness and the peace that he alone can bring. I quoted from James and from Romans. So in James, if I finish the quotation, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Again, it is really so you may become like Jesus. Or the passage in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the purpose of our suffering is that we may develop endurance, that we may develop character, that we may develop a maturity, that our hope may be holy in Christ, and that we may know the daily presence of his Spirit in us. We could say, I think, that Christ's suffering was for our justification. Much more than that, of course, but Christ's suffering was for our justification. Our suffering that God allows to come on us is for our sanctification that we may become more holy, that we may become more like Jesus. If you don't take anything else away from what I, I say this evening, just take that God has a purpose in our suffering, that through it we should become more like Jesus. We're going to go through the the verses very quickly in a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to address two difficulties that I see in this passage. There's one difficulty that's cultural, and there's one difficulty that's doctrinal. So the cultural difficulty. 
The writer here is clearly envisaging fathers disciplining their sons. Again, there's a cultural thing. It could be fathers or mothers now. It could be sons or daughters. Um, but there's a cultural thing there. But the big cultural thing is the author is envisaging that they will uh, discipline them through physical punishment, through what we used to call corporal punishment. The, the verses from the end of verse 6, where it says in this verse, he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Actually, the, the literal translation would be he flogs everyone he accepts as a son. And the cultural issue with that is that in our society today, many people would feel that physical punishment of children is unacceptable. Indeed, it's about to become illegal in Scotland in the next couple of months. Let me just say two things. I'm sure there'll be views on both sides in this um, among those who are listening. So let me just say two things uh, about it. The first thing I would say is I think we need to accept that uh, up until at least one generation ago, if not closer than that, physical punishment of children was accepted as being normal and right. And whatever we think of the ethics and the effectiveness of it, I think we need to accept that when it was properly applied, it was done in a loving way by those who cared for their children and who believed it was the best way to train them. So we shouldn't look back in a passage like this and say, this is something which is terrible, it's a practice we wouldn't do today, therefore we should ignore it. Second thing I want to say, though, is that in our society, the fact that we don't strike our children when they are disobedient and discipline them in that way doesn't mean that children aren't and shouldn't be disciplined. A good parent will still discipline their children. Now, they might do it by withdrawing privileges. They might have a naughty step, all sorts of ways in which it can happen. But disciplining of children should still very much be part of our culture today. Where there is no disciplining, children will grow up as spoiled and not understanding the need to be good citizens, to be unselfish, and ultimately they will not mature into responsible adults. So in a sense, the the physical punishment is a bit of a side issue in this, if we're bothered about it. Uh, The fact is that disciplining is still necessary and it's still unpleasant. If you withdraw a privilege from a child, they're going to be very unhappy about it and it might hurt you as a parent to have to do that, but it is a necessary thing to teach and train them. And so the context here is that parents discipline their children and God disciplines us. We then have the theological doctrinal difficulty. And this is that we know that Jesus took the punishment for our sins on the cross. That he took everything that was owed by us, or all the sin, or all the dirt in our lives, he took on himself so that we could be forgiven for it. And we might say, well, then if that's the case... Why does it talk here about God punishing us? Does that mean that our sins are being punished twice, once for Christ on the cross and once in our lives? Well, no, it doesn't. And I think we're much better at looking at this passage and thinking of it in terms of corrective discipline, of rebuke from God, of God trying to help us to see the wrong in our lives and to put it right. 
We could never take the full punishment for our sins in this life, and we don't need to. Christ has taken all that was due by us. But God still needs, as a father, as a loving heavenly father, he he needs to correct us, he needs to rebuke us, he needs to put us on the right path, and he does that in love. And that is one of the key things we'll see as we go along this evening. So let's look at the passage now, and I've got four headings which hopefully will be helpful. So verses 3 and 4, I've headed, remember God's son. Remember God's son. So verse 3, the writer says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And the bridge here is that the writer is taking Christ's sufferings. He's then going to talk about our sufferings. And he says really two things about it. The first is that when we suffer, Christ should be our inspiration. The one who encourages us to go on and to persevere as he did. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. And if we face suffering in our lives, and we all do to a greater or lesser extent, and some obviously much more than others, what we should do is we should consider the sufferings of Christ and recognize the way in which he came through them, the way in which he submitted himself perfectly to God's will. And that should be the inspiration for us too, to go through and to endure. And then he's not just our inspiration, but Christ is our example. And that's what the writer is talking about in verse 4, I think. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What is the point of that? It is that Christ did suffer. He did shed his blood for us. Now, maybe the some of those that the writer here is addressing will at a later stage uh, face the ultimate sacrifice. They may well be martyred for their faith. But he says, Christ has suffered much more than you ever will. Follow his example. As in everything in life, if we can strive to be like Christ, then we will be doing God's will and we will grow to be mature uh, Christian people. Christ is our inspiration and Christ is our example when we face suffering. We need to remember God's Son. Verses 5 and 6, I've headed, remember God's Word. Now these verses are principally a quotation from the book of Proverbs. And the writer, he's taking an Old Testament passage, and as New Testament writers do, he, he's expanding on it, and he's applying it to the situation. And he says, have you, you have, or have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? Quite interesting that the word that's translated encouragement here is the same words that's used of the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel, translated comfort or counsellor generally in our versions of the Bible. It is the same word the writer is using here, the same root word, when he says that it is a word of encouragement that is given in Proverbs. You might not think it sounds very much like a word of encouragement, but certainly a word of good advice. It is good 
counsel. And so the writer says, first of all, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. There are two dangers that the author is addressing here. And the first is that we don't recognize or don't take seriously the suffering that we face in our lives. The thought here when he talks about making light is very much the same thought as early in the chapter when he talks about the Lord Jesus despising the shame, not thinking nothing of the shame that came upon him. And that was because he was suffering for us. Well, the writer says, in this case, it's not a good thing to make light of what's happening here. If we suffer, let's think about why are we suffering? Now, Scripture makes it very, very clear there's not a one-to-one connection between sin and suffering. It's not always the case that we do something wrong and then we suffer for it. And yet it is true that, that the Scripture here is teaching that when we suffer, we should examine ourselves and should say, well, what is it that God is teaching me through my suffering? When something goes wrong in my life, is this God speaking to me and bringing to my attention something that needs corrected? And it's very dangerous just to look at suffering and to, 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 to thole it, to suffer it, and not to think, well, what is it that God is saying to me through it? There's a slight irony, I think, here. The, the, the situation that Paul is thinking about is people who are particularly suffering through persecution. So it's actually those who are making a stand for Jesus who are suffering. And that is why he goes on to talk about be suffering as sons. So it's not because they're particularly bad people that God is disciplining them. Rather, it's because there are people who are close to him, who are living for him, but who still need to grow in their faith, who still need to repent of sins in their lives. And so when we suffer, in whatever way we do in our lives, let's make sure that we ask that question. Is there something that God is saying to me through this? Is there something I need to address that God is drawing to my attention? But then alongside that, the writer says, do not make light of the Lord's suffering and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. So on the one side, there's the danger that we suffer and we don't really think about it and it doesn't make any difference to us. On the other side, there's the danger that we suffer and we think, oh, God must have rejected me that I'm going through this terrible time in my life. I'm losing heart. I don't know if I can keep going in my Christian faith. And the writer says we mustn't have that attitude either. If we suffer, God will give us the grace to endure our suffering if we trust in him and depend on him for it. He will not let us be tested beyond what we can bear, as 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So God, when he allows us to suffer, he does it in a way that there is a way for us to come through it, and to come through it not with our faith weakened, not with a, a feeling of resentment towards God, but rather with our faith strengthened as we recognize that God is working in our lives. 
And so the, the writer here introduces through the quote from Proverbs what he's going to be covering particularly in the next few verses. God, the Lord, disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And that is the theme of verses 7 to 9. I've called it, Remember God's Love. Remember God's Son. Remember God's Word. Remember God's Love. And the writer says, God only disciplines us because he loves us. He doesn't discipline us despite his love for us. He disciplines us because of his love for us. And he draws the analogy that we touched on briefly earlier of human parents. Now let's recognise at this point that not all parents fit in the model that is described here. There are parents who are very bad parents. There are parents who are cruel, who are abusive towards their children. There are parents who neglect their children. Now, some of us have been very blessed that we have had godly parents who have brought us up well, have disciplined us well, have shown us real love. But I recognize there may be some for whom that's not the case. Whether it is or not, I think we can understand how what God does for us through disciplining us relates to what a good human parent would do that it is a demonstration of his love for us. And the writer talks about legitimate and illegitimate children. He talks about those who are truly loved by their father and those who aren't really part of the family. And it is those who are really part of the family who are God's children who experience his disciplining because he loves us. And our disciplining by God should bring us into a deeper experience of him. Disciplining isn't a sign that God doesn't care. It's a sign that he does care. And when we recognize that, as the writer says, it will lead not to resentment, but to respect. We respected our human fathers, the good human fathers, it says, because of their loving discipline. How much more, great New Testament phrase, how much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? How much more should we recognize what God is doing in us and should recognize that is for our good? And unlike human fathers and human mothers, God never gets it wrong. He always does what is for our good. He never does it from selfish motives, as any parent probably at times does. He does it always for our good. And then finally, in verses 10 and 11, I've headed this, remember God's purpose. Remember God's purpose. Remember God's son. Remember God's word. Remember God's love. Remember God's purpose. As we said at the beginning, suffering with a purpose is beneficial to us and therefore can be welcomed. We can find joy even in the most adverse circumstances. And the reason for that is that ultimately, through our suffering, we develop Christian character. Now, there's a short-term and a longer-term thing, I think, here. 
So verse 10, it says, God disciplines for us as for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Now, that has a long-term implication, but perhaps a short-term one as well. As we understand that God is disciplining us, that the suffering in our life is a kind of wake-up call from God uh, to do away with some sin in our lives, so we put away that sin, we become more holy, more set apart for God, uh, and we try to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord Jesus, that are not resisting his will. So there's a short-term benefit that it makes us more holy, it makes us more devoted to God. But then there's the long-term benefit. The writer says, no discipline, 11, no discipline seems present at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. So those who have suffered and have recognized the Lord's hand in their suffering. They mature as Christians, and there is a harvest. Now, the whole thought of a harvest is that it's something that happens after a period. You sow your, sow your seed in the spring, and in the autumn, all being well, you have your harvest. And so it is here that we sow, or God sows throughout our lives, in disciplining us, in teaching us, in training us, and over time we mature, and then there is a true harvest in us, a harvest of righteousness and peace. Righteousness of being more conformed to God's will, of living lives that are better for him, of doing away with the sin that so easily besets us, we talked about earlier in the chapter. Peace that we have in us, that inner peace that comes from our knowledge of the Lord Jesus and from having true confidence in him. And when people have suffered, it does make a difference to their lives if they have recognized God's hand and been willing to be obedient to him. John Stott said, there is always an indefinable something about people who have suffered. They have a fragrance which others lack. They exhibit the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I'm sure all of us can look at Christians we've known who've suffered greatly in their lives, perhaps are still suffering greatly. And we look at them and say, what a lovely character they have. How Christ-like they are in their sufferings. And that comes about because they recognized God's hand when they were suffering. And they made every effort to live like Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to recognize that God is molding them into the image of his son. And as we mature, as with children, as they grow older, if they have been brought up well, if they have been disciplined well when they are young, then they become mature adults, responsible citizens in our society. And they don't need then the same discipline because they are self-disciplined. They have learned discipline and they don't need a parent constantly to be reminding them of it. And so it is in the Christian faith. As we accept God's discipline, perhaps when we're young, but could be at any stage in our lives, then we get more and more self-disciplined and able to live for Jesus. 
and not to need God's correction. Yesterday afternoon, I was watching the UK Athletics Championships on television. Obviously, very like every sports event, rather strange at the moment. No spectators round about, just the athletes competing. And I was quite struck by one of the winners when they got interviewed um, after the event. One of the winners said something along these lines. I was really worried going into lockdown because I didn't know how I would get on without my coach to encourage me and to urge me on. I didn't know whether I could keep going. But because I'd been trained and built up the disciplines that I needed in my training, because I knew what the goal was and what I needed to do to get there, I was able to achieve it. In other words, having been disciplined, having been taught by their coach, having been urged on through pain and through difficulty as they sought to get better and better. When they didn't have the coach there, they were able to keep going because they had developed, they had matured, they were themselves disciplined. And that is what we are aiming for. We are aiming that we get to a position where we are obedient to God, where we have grown in him, and we don't need to the same extent his disciplining of us. It will still come. We all still fail. But as we become more like Jesus, it becomes less and less necessary. So four points there then. Four things to take away. Remember God's Son. Remember Jesus who is our inspiration and our example. Remember God's word. Remember the writer to the Proverbs and how he encourages us not to be downhearted or to ignore God's discipline, but rather to learn from it. Remember God's love, that when he disciplines us, it's not a sign he doesn't care. It's a sign of how much he does care. And remember God's purpose. That in all our suffering, God has the purpose that we may grow to Christian maturity, that we may become more like Jesus. Let me finish by quoting from, I think, one of the greatest Christians of the last hundred years, Dr. Helen Rosevere. Now, many of you will probably know Helen Rosevere's story. Uh, When she was a student, she felt the call to missionary work uh, and she went to the Congo. She worked as a doctor, she trained other medical people, she set up medical facilities there. She did a tremendous work for the Lord. And then there was a civil war in the Congo. And Helen Rosevere, along with other colleagues, was captured by the rebel forces. And she was brutally beaten up and raped and left in a dreadful physical condition. And she was at the point where she was thinking... I'm not sure I can go on. I'm not sure I can bear this. And while she was thinking that, she became very aware of the presence of the Lord Jesus with her. And she recognized that her suffering was not something that should break her, not something she should shy away from and think this is dreadful, but that it was something that she should almost welcome. And she describes it as a privilege. Let me read what she says. One word became unbelievably clear, and that word was 
privileged. He didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there, but now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. God never uses a person greatly until he has wounded them deeply. The privilege he offers you is greater than the price you have to pay. The privilege is greater than the price. So when we face suffering in our lives, and I say we all do, and some of you I know suffer far, far more than I ever have. Let's recognize that it is part of God's plan for us. In a real sense, it is a privilege that he uh, allows us to suffer. We are in some way in reflecting the suffering that the Lord Jesus had. And as we suffer, let us recognize God's hand in it. Let us recognize the sinfulness in our lives and put it aside. And let us grow to maturity and to be more like our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage, which at first seems very difficult, but yet can be very precious as we understand it. That as a loving father, you discipline your children. But you do it only for our good. That we may have more joy and peace in the Lord Jesus. That we may mature in faith and become truly holy and righteous that we may become truly like Jesus, may share something of his character and represent that to others. And we pray that when we face times of suffering in our lives, that you will help us to see that under your hand, we can endure the suffering. More than that, we can be drawn to the Lord Jesus through it and come to understand more the love that he had for us as he suffered. Help us to be those who endure suffering with courage and with faith and with a real confidence in you. We thank you for the time we've had studying your word as now we come uh, to remember the Lord Jesus in the way that he's appointed. Help us to understand a bit more of his suffering and to be drawn closer to him. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.